Okay. Well, it would have been really entertaining if Mike Mason like, challenged somebody to wrestle on stage. That's what I was hoping for. <laughs> that would have really been wild. So we're, we're going to keep our series on the Beatitudes going. I think we've been in Matthew chapter 5 for a couple weeks now. And so if you're new this morning, we're going we're to take on the fifth blessing or the fifth beatitude. So just a little recap if you're joining us for the first time. Uh, this is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest sermon that Jesus would preach. And he kicks it off with something called the Beatitudes. The word he repeats eight times is the word blessed. The word blessed. Let me read Matthew. I'm going to start in uh, verse 2. This is Matthew 5, 2. And I'll show, show you what I mean. He says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so blessedness, according to Jesus, is very different than the way our world describes blessedness. Our world tends to think about blessedness strictly in material or worldly ways. But Jesus is saying something different. He's saying, I'm talking about divine happiness, something deeper, something eternal. And what we've talked about over the last couple of weeks is the first couple Beatitudes describe how to enter the kingdom. If there's one word, one phrase that summarizes the theme of the Beatitudes, it's the word kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, in order to enter my kingdom, you've got to be poor in spirit. Uh, you've got to mourn your sin and you've got to be meek. You've got to submit to me as your ruler or your king. And we're about to make a turn right now because what Jesus is about to describe with the final four Beatitudes is how you live in his kingdom. So this is the behavior, the characteristics of someone who is a citizen of King Jesus. So here's how I want you to think about it, just in the same way that, that an expert gardener can take a plot of dirt and turn it into a blossoming garden, just in the same way that a group of undisciplined athletes and players can come together and become a successful team under the right coach, in the same way, when you come under the authority of King Jesus, it changes everything, okay? Jesus changes everything when he becomes your king. And this is a phrase we tend to throw, throw around a lot in our world, that something changes our life, okay? My wife, ladies, oftentimes you talk about some new kitchen appliance, how it changed your life, the crock pot, the Instapot, you know, the air fryer, you bought it, and it changed your life. The little Dyson vacuum, somehow, some way, a vacuum can change your life. I don't know how that works, but right, it changed your life. You know, you guys, we do the same thing. We tend to think, say things are game changers, right? And Jesus is saying the exact same thing. He's saying, my kingdom is a game changer. It changes everything about you. And that's what we'll be looking over at over the next couple weeks. He says, look, when you join my kingdom, first it changes your relationships. That's what we'll talk about this morning. Your relationships will be marked by mercy. The next week, Jesus is going to describe how my kingdom will change your heart. It will purify it. It will focus your heart. And then finally, Jesus is going to describe how my kingdom will actually change your purpose. You'll no longer live for yourself, but your new purpose in life will be to make peace. 
So this morning, we're going to talk about mercy. We're going to talk about mercy. So what is mercy? Is mercy just one of those pithy sentiments where we say, oh, have mercy on this person or bless his heart? Well, what is mercy? Here's my definition of mercy. It is compassionate and costly care for those in need. It's compassionate and costly care for those who need. Mercy is Jesus' answer to how believers should respond to distress and needs in the world. Now think about it this way. How does our world tend to respond or react to when people are in distress or need? Well, we tend to avoid needs and we tend to withdraw from hard things. You can think about it this way. If you're ever driving in downtown Atlanta, you ever walk into a Braves game, you see somebody homeless, you see somebody in apparent physical distress, what do you tend to do? Avert your eyes. I look away because I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to wrestle with this. Maybe you're channel surfing late at night. You come across the infomercial of the third world country, the emaciated orphans. What do you do? You change the channel because I don't want to watch this. I don't want to see this, especially late at night. I mean, even when we take trips and we travel to different all-inclusive resorts in third world countries, what surrounds all these resorts? Really high What? Walls, because we don't want to be confronted with the needs around us as we sip, you know, fruity drinks and enjoy our vacation. We want to check out, we want to relax, because in general, we want to insulate ourselves from need. We want to ignore, we want to remain comfortable and complacent and not have to deal with the distress around us. And so Jesus' response to how do we deal with the needs of the world is to show mercy. So what makes mercy different than grace? Are they synonyms? Are they the same thing? Well, they're similar but not identical. So we know grace pretty well. The definition of grace is this. It's unmerited or undeserved favor. So you can think about it this way. If somebody has a need, I show grace by helping them when they don't deserve it. You with me? What's so significant about mercy? Well, mercy involves this. Mercy requires that I show sympathy for someone who's suffering. So when I'm merciful, I actually feel pain. I empathize, and then I move to alleviate that suffering. So let me give you a quick, quick example. Uh, I've got a five-year-old, and she's learning how to ride her bike. So every day after dinner, we go ride our bike, so I have a daily opportunity to show grace and mercy. You with me? Because as we learn how to ride bikes, there's a lot of skin knees, there's a lot of spills, and there's a lot of you know, princess band-aids going on her knees and her elbows. But when Ellie falls on the bike, Grace would look this way. Okay, she fell over because she's coordinated, she can't ride a bike, and she's a five-year-old. I know that sounds pretty harsh, but grace in the moment would just be to pick her up, to get her back on her bike, and move her forward. But mercy would be a little different. It would be in the moment, I empathize with her. I feel what she feels. I even get a little misty-eyed, and my heart breaks for her as I get her back on the bike. So do you see this? You can actually demonstrate grace without mercy. You can help somebody but feel nothing for that person. But you can't have mercy without grace. See, mercy always involves feeling compassion for someone in need and then going to them and helping them at an incredible cost to yourself. Here's what's really interesting. Jesus makes a a really insightful comparison uh, to mercy. In Matthew 9, 13, Jesus is surrounded by a group of religious leaders, and he says this, I desire, meaning what I really want, 
is mercy, not sacrifice. It's a pretty interesting statement. And here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying the opposite of mercy, you want to know what it is? It's religious ceremony. It's religious ceremony because Jesus was talking about sacrifice. Religious leaders who would bring animals and make a public demonstration of their devotion to God. And do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I don't want formality. I don't want you to go through the motions. The other night we were up at the Amp listening to some cheesy 80s cover band. And they started playing this song, I want you to want me. I need you to need me. I'd love you to love me. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing. He's saying when you serve me, when you obey me, I don't just want the sacrifices. There's got to be feelings. There's got to be affections. And there's got to be desire because this is what mercy involves. So if that's what mercy is, how do we show mercy? How do we demonstrate mercy? We're going to look at two areas, two places that we have opportunities to show mercy. The first is forgiveness, and the second is generosity. And with each, with each of these points, I'm going to point you to another story or parable that Jesus tells, and I'm going to point you to another verse from the Apostle Paul. So let's start with forgiveness. Jesus has a very famous, important parable about forgiveness, and it's found in Matthew 18. The subtitle is this, The Parable of the Unforgiving Servant. Now, I'm not going to read the whole parable, but here's the basic gist of it. There was this great king, he was incredibly wealthy and rich, and at one point, he had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. And this king, in mercy, decides to absolve or to forgive this debt. Now, before we move on to the moral of the story, we got to do a little, you know, currency exchange. we got to give you a little monetary context when it comes to this thing called a talent. A talent was this, a talent was equivalent to 6,000 days of work. So just think about your normal job, your nine to five. If you did that for 6,000 consecutive days, okay, that would be the equivalent of one talent. So you might be doing some math in your mind. Okay, 10,000 talents would be 60 million days of work. If you want me to put that in years, that's 200,000 years of work. In our day and age, that would be about 3.5, you want to guess? Billion dollars. That's billion with a B. Now look, that's not like Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates money, but would you guys agree that's a pretty big debt? Okay, that would take a long time to pay off. And the point that Jesus is making is this, is that forgiveness is always expensive. Forgiveness is always costly. And you can never erase, you can never, you, you can never make debt disappear. Somebody has to absorb the debt. You can think about it this way. I, I, I am uh, pretty good at a few things. One thing I'm not very good at is parking my truck. And for those guys who work with me at West Georgia, they know this. On a regular basis, they take pictures of my truck. I'm like crossed over lines. And so believe it or not, a couple years ago, I was pulling in and actually dented, okay, the car uh, of one of our football players, okay? And so at that point, Okay, there's a scratch on his car, and, there's, and, and, and something has to be done about it. Okay, And somebody has to pay the mechanic, the body shop, to fix the dent. You with me? And it doesn't matter what your insurance is. You could have liability, you have comprehensive. The point is this, somebody's got to pay the debt. Somebody's got to get it fixed. And either it's me or my insurance, or it's this guy's. But we can't just say, agree to disagree, okay? Uh, the, the debt just absolves or disappears or floats into the air. 
somebody's got to pay. Okay? Somebody's got to pay. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4. He says we've got to be kind to one another. We've got to forgive as God in Christ forgave us. And so Paul is just adding to the teaching of Jesus. And he's saying, look, mercy, forgiveness, it's not based on circumstances, what's been done to you, the severity of the offense. It's based on Jesus. It's based on him. And so we've got to forgive no matter what. And so kingdom people, those who submit to King Jesus, we should be the most merciful people in the world. Because first and foremost, we serve, we live for a merciful king. But also think about this, what have we been forgiven? We've been forgiven in an immense debt, something that's even bigger than $3.5 billion. And so the moral of this parable is this, the king looks at the servant and he says, look, you need to have mercy on others the same way I had mercy on you. And so as followers of Jesus, recipients of extravagant, generous mercy, we should be the most merciful people in the world. So that's one area we show mercy is in forgiveness. But the second place is in generosity. And for generosity, we're looking at another parable. This parable is found in Luke 10. You don't have to flip there. You're probably familiar with this story. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. And once again, here's the story. There's a Jewish man, and he is walking a path. He's on a journey, and he's beaten. He's thrown down. He's on the verge of death. He's bloody. He's banged up. And he's fallen down, okay, in the middle of this road. Now, when you think about road, don't think about even Highway 27 or I-20. Think about like a trail, something you hike. It's a pathway. And two religious leaders come upon upon this man on the verge of death. There's a priest and a Levite. And when Jesus is telling this story, he says that they literally, they step over this man. And so once again, we have religious leaders missing the need that is right in front of them failing to show mercy. And then all of a sudden, there's a Samaritan. Now, Samaritans were hated in this day and age. They came from a a mixed uh, ethnic background, but they also believed in in a mixed religion. And they were despised. They were looked down on socially um, in the ancient Near East. And so this Samaritan, and you know the story, he shows great compassion. He demonstrates great mercy to this man in need. And at the very end of the story, as Jesus is sharing this parable, he says, who proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell upon the robbers? And do you remember the response? They say this, the one who showed what? Who showed mercy. The good Samaritan embodied was an example of mercy. And so we're going to look at how the Good Samaritan behaves, because this will be really instructive and how we should show mercy in our day and age. So first off, when the Good Samaritan shows mercy, it starts with his eyes. See, he doesn't just glance at the man in need, he actually gazes at the man in need. He sees distress. He doesn't just see a problem, he sees a person. Jesus says that the Samaritan saw him, and and it moves from his eyes to his heart, the next part of, bo- his, of the body that Jesus brings up is the heart of the Samaritan. It says this, when he saw him, he had compassion. He feels pity. He feels compassion deep in his heart. And then it moves to his hands. Do you see the, you, you see the process? The eyes to the heart to the hands. The good Samaritan makes practical effort to serve the man in need. Jesus says he went to him, he bound up his wounds, 
He poured oil. He poured wine. Then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. Do you see this is the embodiment of mercy? It's compassionate. It's costly. His clothes get messy. He's covered in blood. He's actually risking his life. He puts this man that he's just met in an inn for months. He covers the cost. He provides for his medical needs. Let me just call a quick time out and make one little note. Where, where does the process of mercy begin? What part of the body? Do you remember? Y'all help me out. Does it start with the heart? No, it starts with the eyes. So it's really critical that we pay attention to what we're looking at, what we're gazing at. Did you know this? You can actually read scientific studies, and somehow they're able to measure this, but they have noticed there is a 40% decline in empathy in the current generation. Okay? You ever wondered why? You ever wondered why there's such a significant, drastic decline in empathy? Well, it coincides with one invention. Anybody want to guess what it is? Okay? Okay, I see people holding it. It's the smartphone. It's actually the smartphone. Because if you think about it, compassion starts where? Mercy starts where? It starts with the eyes. And if I'm not gazing at people in need, if I'm not gazing in distress, because I'm constantly gazing at my screen, guess what? I'm not going to experience mercy. Okay? And so mercy takes time. And very often what we do is we see need, we're confronted with distress, and instead of meditating, considering, feeling compassion, we're distracted. We lose focus because we move to a different app or an email or some sort of entertainment on our screen phone. And I know I sound the old, like the old guy, okay? I'm not saying throw away your iPhone. But what I am saying is this, is that this is one, this is one consequence of being consistently distracted. Is that we are losing the ability to empathize and show mercy. Okay, back to the sermon. So, Paul has something to say about this in Galatians 6.2. He actually describes mercy this way. He says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this is what the parable of the, the Good Samaritan is demonstrating, is that very often when we think about love and mercy and forgiveness, we tend to romanticize it. That's what the law of Christ is. It's loving our neighbor. That's what the Good Samaritan was doing. And do you see what Galatians 6.2 is saying? He's saying, He's bringing this lofty concept of mercy and bringing it down to earth. Because oftentimes when we think about mercy, we think it's warm and fuzzy, it's feel good. And Paul says, here's a better image of mercy. Let's go to the next slide. He says, oftentimes, mercy is like bearing a burden. Do you understand the picture? A burden is a heavy weight that you bear on your shoulders. And if I'm going to love somebody with a burden, what do I have to do? I can't do it from a distance. I've got to come near. I've got to be in close proximity. I've got to dip my shoulder, and I've got to bear some of the weight. Do you see this? Mercy, love, it's heavy. Oftentimes, it probably feels like Navy SEALs buds training, okay? So for my war historians in the crowd, this is a picture from Navy SEALs training, and the most famous part of their training is what they do with the log. This is a 10-foot log. It weighs 250 pounds. And they do overhead presses. They do sit-ups. They jog in formation with this log. And they always do it as a team. And this is what mercy looks like day in, day out. Because when somebody's weak, when somebody falters, the rest of the platoon, they have to shift their balance. They have to bear more of the load. They have to come around them. And and they have to keep moving forward. So do you see what mercy says? It says, bring on the burden. 
This is what I'm here for. No matter the cost, I'm going to put it on my back. Real mercy, it's tough. It's heavy sometimes. So this begs the question, should we always show mercy? Well, Ben, if I always show mercy, why don't I be a pushover? Why don't I be weak, have no backbone? I would just say this. Should we always show mercy? I'll give you a qualified no. A qualified no. Because think about Christ. Christ showed mercy, but it was always mingled with justice. It was always mercy mingled with justice. The reality is we live in a fallen world, and so there is a time and a place for penalties, for punishment, and for consequences. We also serve God, who is a God of justice, and we know that God disciplines those he loves. And discipline often brings a greater good to a greater amount of people. And so there there does come moments in our life where you have to show discipline and justice. Maybe you have to spank a child, prosecute a criminal, dismiss an employee. But the way we do these things will be different. The mercy will show even in our justice. So as a parent, before you discipline your child, you may explain what's going on, how this is a demonstration of your love. If you're in the the, the law field and you have to prosecute a criminal, you may visit the criminal, the offender, and his family and serve them. If you have to dismiss an employee, maybe provide a reference or a way for them to find other work. But the mercy is going to come out. The mercy always come out. I was trying to think of like a recent story that demonstrates mercy in action. You might remember this story from two years ago. This was 2018. This occurred in Texas. But there was a young uh, police officer named Amber Geiger. And it's a really unfortunate, sad, complicated, confusing story. But basically, she walked into an apartment thinking it was her own home. She mistook somebody for an intruder, and she shot him at close range. Well, it wasn't her apartment. It was the apartment of a young immigrant named Botham Jean, and she killed him. And so there came time for the, for the trial to take place, and Botham had a young brother who was 18-year-old, and his name was Brant. And over the course of the trial, Brant actually took, he actually took the stand. Let me read one of his statements. He looked at someone who mistakenly killed his brother, and he said this. He says, I hope you go to God with all the guilt, all the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something we're not supposed to do. If you're truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself, I forgive you. And I know that if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I personally want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham, my big brother, would want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. And then he paused. He was getting choked up. He was getting emotional. You can watch the video. And he looks at the judge. He says, I don't know if this is possible, but can I please give her a hug? Compassion and cost. And so this young 18-year-old walks to the middle of the courtroom, and he embraces this young lady, Amber, three times in front of the courtroom, and they break down. This is radical mercy. So we do see, we see these stories in our nation of just radical mercy. But what if there were stories in our community of radical mercy? 
What if when people talked about King's Chapel, it wasn't just the white church with the new sign on Highway 27, but we were known for our mercy, our costly sacrifice, our compassion in how we helped the needy? What if when people talked about members of this church, they said, you know what they're known for, their reputation is? It's for generosity and forgiveness. Well, brothers and sisters, then we'd be a church. We'd be a church. And so at this point, you might be feeling like me. Maybe you feel a little guilty, a little convicted, or just a little bit confused. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, how do I get that type of mercy? Where do I get that type of power? Where does this come from? I don't think I got it within me. And guess what? You're exactly right. Because it's supernatural. And here's what some people think. And this is the mistaken or wrong way to go about experiencing and extending mercy. Is that you start with beatitude number five. Blessed are the merciful, for they receive mercy. And you think about it this way. Well, if I just live a life of mercy, then what? Well, then God will be merciful to me. In other other words, you're trying to earn mercy through your mercy. How do you think that's going to work out for you? Not very well. Because earned mercy is a contradiction in terms. And if mercy could be earned, it wouldn't be what? It wouldn't be mercy. And so instead of starting with beatitude number five, where do we have to begin? With beatitude number one. And we get, we got to recognize first and foremost that I'm what? That I am poor in spirit. I don't have what it takes. The mercy is not within me. Spiritually, I'm insolvent. I'm bankrupt. I don't have a cent to my name. And yet, look at Jesus. Look how compassionate and costly his mercy was for me. See, the point Jesus is making is this, is that when you know God's mercy, then you start to show it. When you experience his mercy, then you start to extend it. And Jesus says the same thing about forgiveness, doesn't he? He says, forgiven people forgive people. And so here's our final point for the morning. We're going to spend just a moment looking at the cost of mercy. And this is what the king in the parable of the unforgiving servant does. He says, remember the big debt. Look at the cost Look at the price. Look at the cost of my mercy. And so we want to do the same thing. Have you ever thought about this? All right, and just hang with me. But forgiveness, the forgiveness of sinners is the biggest problem that God had in human history. Okay, just hang with me. Here's what I mean. Think back to the first page of your Bible. Genesis 1, the very beginning. Genesis 1 is all about what? Creation. And God creates everything with what? Hard work, determination. He makes everything through what? Help me out. Through his words. He literally speaks it into existence. He makes animals. He makes plants. He makes fishes. He makes mountains just by speaking it into existence. In Genesis 1-3, it's short, it's sweet, but God says, let there be light, and there's light. That means God, in just one statement, one phrase, creates the entire universe. It means he creates the sun, Do you know this? The sun's over one million times the size of the earth. That means he makes every star in the Milky Way galaxy. If you devoted your whole life to counting stars in the Milky Way galaxy and found out a way to count one star every second, it would take you 2,500 years to count all the stars in one galaxy. And astronomers say this, that there are billions of galaxies. Do you understand what Genesis 1-3 is saying? Is that God made all of that with just one word. Just one statement. Do you know this? There's one thing God could not speak into existence. There's one thing that God could not create by his word. 
It was mercy. It was forgiveness. Do you see this? God couldn't just snap his fingers and say, you're forgiven. He couldn't just speak into existence the mercy. It took incredible effort. He had to send his son to earth. Jesus had to take on humanity, and he had to die on the cross. And so how costly was the mercy of Jesus? How costly was the mercy of Jesus? You can think about it this way. If I came to you and I said, I'm going to pay one of your bills, how would you respond to that? You'd probably be pretty pleased, but there'd be a little bit of confusion because you'd probably say, well, it depends on what bill. Like, Ben, I'm not really sure how to respond, what to do with my hands, because you've got to tell me what the bill is first, okay? Is it my Netflix bill? That's probably a bad example because most of you use, like, your cousin or uncle's password. <laughs> so maybe it's, like, my internet bill, and you, you might give me a high five. You, know, you might give me some, some knuckles. You save me 50 bucks. But what if I said, no, it, it's your mortgage. I paid down your house. I paid it all. I paid off that sweet minivan you bought last month, okay? You're going to respond completely different because that's real mercy because the cost is greater. Well, here's what I want to demonstrate is that the mercy that Jesus demonstrates is ultimate mercy because he paid the ultimate price. It cost him everything in two respects, and this is where we'll end it. First off, relationally. Jesus paid the relational cost. Do you remember at the cross before Jesus breathes his last breath? He says what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, the word forsaken means this. It means to turn your back, to reject, and to be cut off. You can think about it this way. Some of you might have been relationally rejected at one point in your life. Actually, remember, I won't tell you the whole story, but, you know, I work on a college campus, and believe it or not, sometimes people reject me. And I remember one time a guy said, look, I'm done with you, Ben. I don't want to talk to you. I'm done, and he walked away from the, from the lunchroom table, okay? And this was just like some sort of random student, but basically, I went home that day, and I was like, Leah, here's what happened. I didn't lose too much sleep over it, because he was a stranger, he was a freshman, I didn't know him, know him that well, and I was like, man, I'm just going to move on with my life. But what if over the course of the sermon, you came to me at the end of the sermon, and you said, Ben, I can't wait for the real pastor to get back, your sermons are lame, your analogies are silly, Okay, I hate you and I never want to see you again. Okay, that's going to cause some distress, and I feel like I'm a pretty tough guy, but that's going to eat me up. Okay, it's going to affect me. Now, what if over family lunch, Leah looks at me and says, I never want to see you again? I'm turning my back on you. That's going to be devastating. It's going to be devastating because you see this the more loving, the more intimate the relationship is, the more devastating. Or painful it is when you're cut off or forsaken. And now look, Lee and I, we've known each other for eight years. We've been married for seven. Okay? We're pretty close. We're in a covenant. But think about God the Son and God the Father. Think about the Trinity. Eternal, perfect, oneness. Together as one since eternity passed. There was significant relational cost. And then there was physical cost. There was physical cost. Right before Jesus goes to the cross, he spends the night in the garden. And if you remember, one of the Gospels makes the note that Jesus actually starts sweating drops of blood. Now, believe it or not, you can run this by a doctor. There is an actual medical condition called hematidrosis. And it's when your capillaries bust in your skin and you're sweating profusely. And the sweat and the blood mix together so it looks like you're sweating drops of blood. Okay, Chuck? You fact-checking me? Okay, look, got the nod right there. 
It's the real deal. And when your body is stressed to the absolute max, this is what happens. And you know what's going on here? Jesus in the garden begins to die at the mere thought of dying on the cross. He's under extreme pressure, deep internal agony. He's just thinking about the cross, and he sweats drops of blood. Hematidrosis, as he's isolated and alone. The only point I want to make is this. How much worse was the pain of the cross? If that's what Jesus experienced just thinking about the cross, how much worse was it to actually suffer? So it was the ultimate relational and physical cost. And here's what we got to remember. Is that we're unlike Jesus. We're not known for our mercy. I'm not known for my compassionate and costly care and treatment of those in need. Because if I had to be honest with you, most days I'm self-centered. I'm apathetic. I fail to show mercy. The number one reason why I don't show mercy is because I'm absorbed in, in my own problems. I'm concerned and consumed with my own needs. And so in those moments, what do we need to do? We need to look at Jesus in agony. I mean, just think for a moment. What if Jesus would have said in the garden, man, why should I go to the cross? Why should I sacrifice? I'm greater than the angels. Why should I leave my glory for these people? They'll never repay me. I mean, my disciples can't even stay awake. My greatest moments of need. And these people I'm about to die for, they're unmerciful, unforgiving. They're selfish. They can't even stay awake and read their Bible for 30 minutes a day. But what did Jesus remember in that moment? He said what? When he got off the ground, he said, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, he says, even though these people will kill me, I know my sacrifice will save them. And look, brothers and sisters, when you meditate on that long enough, when you think about it for an extended time, that's going to make you what? It's going to make you merciful. So whatever tough situation you're in, whatever need you're facing, it could be at work, it could be where you study, it could be where you live. Very often the greatest distress that we face, it's right in our own home, maybe with a spouse or a kid, and you're tempted to deal with need the world's way to pull back, to withdraw, to ignore it. What should we do, brothers and sisters? we got to look to Jesus. Mercy in human form, who shows compassionate and costly sacrifice. And then we'll want to go and do likewise. Okay? Let me pray for us. Dear Jesus, we thank you for the example of mercy that you give us through the Good Samaritan, through the forgiving King, and most clearly through your own life, through your own death, through your own sacrifice. Lord, I pray today that we would experience the mercy of God, whatever need, whatever distress we have in our own home. I pray that we would not be consumed, absorbed with our own lives. Instead, Lord, will we gaze at the cross, will we meditate on your sacrifice, will we be a church, will we be families, will we be individuals, men and women, workers, teachers, students, educators, businessmen, who are known for demonstrating, extending the mercy of God. We pray in your name, amen.